Well, FOF, good morning. Guys, so good to see you here today. I tell you, I love that 9 o'clock hour that we just got a chance to come out of. And now to be together here right now as, as one family, one group gathered here. Just uh, It is so awesome to be reconnecting. I am just like in a clappy mood today. You know what I mean? So let's just give it up. And uh, yeah. Those of you who are veterans, you know exactly what this is about. Those of you who are new, I am so looking forward to this series that we're doing in June. It is something we've been doing here at Fellowship of Faith for a number of years now. Questions you never thought you could ask in church, because I bet they're there. I bet, honestly, each of you, whether now or some point along your spiritual journey, have had questions related to God related to the Bible, to Christianity, to Christianity um, in comparison to other religions, to spirituality, or, or to what God wants and what God's doing and where he's going and how to figure that out and how all of that and the Bible and theology and you name it intersect with your life. I bet you've had them. I bet you have them. And even if they're not there at the forefront of your mind this morning, I bet with a little bit of thought, you go, yeah, I've been walking around wondering about this. I've been wondering around asking about this. I've been worrying about this, afraid of this, afraid of God because of this, afraid of the implications of what this might mean. And you've never had a venue to ask it. It's ironic to me that churches should be places where people can come with their deepest struggles, their deepest fears, and their deepest doubts. And that it's sadly ironic that it's often when people step foot into a church that it is the very place that they are afraid to show or express them. We've got a value here at Fellowship of Faith. It's something that defines us. It's in our DNA. I'll be honest, I would rather this church cease to exist as a congregation than lose this aspect or diminish this aspect of who we are, and it's a desire to be real. Let me show this to you. We're going to put it on the screen. We believe the church needs to be a place where people can come and see that Christians are real people, not cookie-cutter people, not pre-manufactured people, not copy after copy after copy conform you to the same model. Some like Pink Floyd video coming back from the past. No, 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 no. It's real people experiencing joys and passions and struggles. And it's because of this that here, and, and, and I'll tell you this honestly, that, that I want to, and I could speak for our staff, that we want to, and as an organization, we, we, we commit ourselves. We want to strive to communicate God's truth and share our experiences in open and honest ways. Now, we hope you do too, that you can come in here and be real about your sadness, be real about your fear, be real about your joy, be real about your desires, be real about your excitement and not feel like this is a place where that has to be inhibited or suppressed or pushed down or that it isn't welcome in some kind of way. No, we believe it's important as a community to be honest, to not just give you the party answer, to not just give you the Christian cliche, to not just give you 
what we think you want to hear, but to be honest, and honest about our shortcomings too. Because we don't live up to the way of God, do we? I don't. You can speak for yourself, but I hope you're willing to admit it and feel safe to admit it in this place. I'll tell you, fellowship of faith is still a far dream from what I think God wants the church to be. But we're going there. And it starts by being open and honest about the ways that we fall short, the ways that we mess it up, the ways that we're sometimes just flat out wrong. And hopefully that allows us to be authentic in our lives because we don't have to live in fear of judgment. We don't have to live in fear of people looking down on us or critiquing us or putting us into some second-class place. We've all been there, haven't we? Or even if we've never experienced it firsthand, we've all feared it. In a certain situation, do I fit in? Can I conform? What's safe to say here? What isn't safe to say here? No, we want to be authentic in our lives and sincere in what we teach. We want to be humble as a church and express our faith in a way that is genuine. We want to be a place where you can ask your questions, whatever they might be, however crazy, outlandish, heretical, however simple or complicated, however global in scope or specific to you personally. We want this to be a place where you can ask them, and that's what we're doing this June. What we're doing during this message time in June is giving you a direct access invitation to say, ask your questions. Don't walk around with them anymore. Ask them right now. And the way you ask them is this. You pull out your phone and you text whatever question you have on God, life, theology, or the Bible to this number right here, 815-314-0363. That's zero F-O-F. Ain't that cool? In my mind, it is. <laughs> Text whatever questions you have. You know what, guys? They're already coming in. This morning, you could hear it dinging. I'm going to get them right here. And you know what? I'm going to get them anonymously. I'm going to get them anonymously. I see the phone number. I don't know the name. Do animals go to heaven? That's a good one. How many more are going to pop in? I'll get them anonymously and I'll do my best to answer them right here on the spot. Now, I want to divert just for a moment into what I call text land at Fellowship of Faith. Because if you've been with us since COVID started, you've you've seen that we've moved more and more from paper to electronic and more and more text numbers are starting to heap up. And I felt it important, or we as a staff, maybe we're overthinking this, but we kind of thought maybe it was important to navigate you through the panoply of numbers and what they do here at Fellowship of Faith. Let's have the slide. There are actually three different numbers here at Fellowship of Faith to text to that serve very different purposes. The first is when we ask you to just kind of say hi for the day, to check in here, or if you have a prayer request, to text in prayer. And by the way, those of you who think you know this number, you don't because the number's been new for the last two weeks. We just haven't been telling you, all right? We've been keeping both numbers open, but we have to move to 800 numbers, and honestly, it's good to as well. So what I encourage you to do is if you have that number saved in your phone, in your context, maybe save just a line in your context that says FOF check-in or FOF prayer. 
It's a new number now, 855-465-2720. Let us know that you're worshiping with us, whether live stream or in person, by texting to that number. But don't, quest, but don't text your questions there. Don't text your questions there. They won't come to me. And we'll know who you are, all right? But if you would, text that you're here today, the top number. Now, some of you through this have, have enjoyed the opportunity to give easily from your phone. That's a separate text and number as well. That's 815-201-1499. Don't text here there. Don't text prayer there. Don't text your questions there. It's only if you want to give an offering via text. It's simple. The first time, it takes like maybe 60 seconds to set it up. After that, it's like a five-second process. But the question we want you to text into for the next 25 to 30 minutes or so is 815-314-0363. And as this already starts to fill up, I'm just going to take these in real time and do the best job that I can, guys, to answer them honestly, sincerely, straightforwardly, as I can, or to give some direction where I can't give the whole picture right now. Make sense? So, let's see what you're asking. And let's see what's coming in. Let's go to the main text and screen now, Shane, and uh, we'll let that one camp for the remainder. Let them continue to come in. So, ooh, all right, someone sent me like 20. Um, John chapter 1 verses 2 through 5, speaks about, speaks about he was, quote, he was with God in the beginning. Who is he? And is the light that is spoken about the same light as in Genesis 1, verse 3? This is kind of a cool, complicated, biblical-like, we got some Bible scholar like sitting here in the, in the rows today. Let me unpack it for you. John's Gospel, a story of the life of Jesus, the first verse is open this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. That's what's getting quoted. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And in him was life. And that life is the light of men, of humanity. And the light shines in the darkness and the darkness could not overcome it. All right? That's the beginning of John's gospel. And in this gospel, the word is Jesus. The light that shines in the darkness that the darkness cannot overcome is the promise of God, the message of hope encapsulated and embodied in Jesus. So what we're reading about is these metaphors that John likes to use for Jesus, the metaphor of word, the metaphor of light. Jesus himself in, the John, in John chapter 8, maybe chapter 10, will say, I am the light of the world. Jesus pictures himself, describes himself as light. And if you go back to the very beginning of the Bible, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and the Spirit of God hovered over the waters of the deep. Right? And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And there was evening and morning the first day. Are the same thing? No, they're not. That's the short answer. As Jesus calls himself the light of the world, he is not talking about the created photons of light as we think of them. 
Jesus was not created. What John is trying to point out is that Jesus is God manifest, that he was there in the beginning, that he and the Father are one. Throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus will say over and over again, I and the Father are one. Even though he prays to the Father, even though he seeks the Father, even though he says, I'll be obedient to Father, he says, no, I and the Father are one. Jesus will even go so far as to say, in the beginning, I am. And anyone who knows the name of Yahweh knows what he's alluding to there. So no, he is not the same, but he was there instrumental, Jesus, in the creation of the world alongside his father. Hope that helps. Great question. Okay, so who wants to hear about animals? All right, too bad. We're going to wait. All right. What is the difference between kill and murder? This has confused some people because if you read the King James Version of the Bible and you come to the, from the Lutheran Catholic ordering of the Ten Commandments, the Fifth Commandment, Sixth Commandment for all you Calvinists out there, all right? If you come to the Fifth Commandment of the Bible in the King James rendering, and of course it's, it's love child like you know, the RSV and maybe even the ESV and things, it will say, thou shalt not kill. And here's the basic issue. This has led people into a series of questioning going, but then you see throughout the Old Testament God actually commanding the people of Israel, the Israelites to kill on occasion, to go into Canaan and go to war. And war means killing. To practice capital punishment under the Old Testament Mosaic law. And they go, eh, how's that fit? Well, if you look at most modern translations of the Bible, you will see the fifth commandment, or the sixth for you Calvinists, translated, you shall not murder. And I think it captures it better. Because there is a distinction between killing and murder. All murder is killing, but not all killing is murder. And without going a million miles deep into this one, let me just give a little bit of a mental hook that you can hang it on. Murder is killing outside of the will of God. That it would seem that there are times when God says it's okay to kill. Now, God never designed killing to be part of his creation from the beginning. And the new heaven, new earth that we look forward to when God renews all things, killing and death will be no more. But sadly, and it's got to break God's heart, that in this broken, sinful, awful world in which we live, it is arguable that there are times, I think times far more rare than we practice, there are times when killing is a lesser of two evils and therefore permitted by God under very specific circumstances. Biblically speaking, that's the difference between murder and kill. How about this? Can LGBTQ plus people go to heaven? You bet they can. You bet they can. The Bible looks at homosexuality as sin. That someone who struggles with homosexual attraction or tendencies or desires is experiencing what the Bible would 
more or less picture as an outcropping of our fallen human nature. And that those who have sex with people of the same sex are violating a command of God. The Bible also says divorce is a sin. The Bible also says premarital sex, heterosexually, is a sin. It would include pornography as a sin. And so many other things that impact us that we could talk about today. And I love how Paul puts this in Romans, that where sin increases, grace increases all the more, that you can't out-sin God. That no matter how broken you are in your sin, whatever it might be, the grace of God is sufficient for you. The blood of Jesus can cover you. And no matter how horrible you might feel or think or have become, whatever the sin might be, in Jesus there is forgiveness for everyone. And that includes every person here or listening who identifies as LGBTQ. Because what Christianity and Jesus is about is saving sinners. And the way of Christianity is not about getting our lives perfect before God so that he'll accept us. No, it's about repentance, which means turning to God and saying, Lord, I'm a broken sinner and I see that your way is different than my own. Oh, God, forgive me in seeking him in that place. So I hope that gives some perspective on, I know, a question that hits so many of us so close to home. Now, how about this? Do all children go to heaven? Do all children go to heaven? I don't know, but I don't think so. But before some of you start to panic with uncertainty, let me explain what I mean. There is a urban legend that I've seen popular in evangelical circles today that revolves around something that often gets termed the age of accountability, which means that God does not hold you accountable for your sin until you hit a certain age of, of maybe reason or self-understanding or whatever it might be, all right? And no one can really pinpoint. It's not like, well, you know, you're 12 and a half, so sorry, should have died yesterday. <laughs> I don't think it works like that. Certainly we see in the Bible that God contextualizes how he holds us accountable for sin. I love how Jesus puts it, that those who are entrusted with little will be beaten with few blows, and those who are entrusted with many will be beaten with many blows. So there does certainly seem to be some kind of gradation of what judgment might look like. But this is true throughout the Bible, and I want to change the way you think about sin. What you see that I see through the pages of the Bible is that we are sinful from birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, as David will write in the Psalms. That all of us are born fallen, corrupt, and sinful from the very beginning because sin is not just what you do. You gotta stop thinking about sin in terms of do's and do nots. Sin is who you are. You sin because you are a sinner. You are not a sinner because you sin. You see the distinction? 
that I'm making there, which means all of us stand as those fallen short of the glory of God. But Jesus died for all people, and that means children too. And we know that we are saved by grace that comes through faith. But I don't know about you. None of my kids at the age of nine months old said, you know, Dad, I've been thinking about this. And I've come to realize that I'm a sinful human being. But I know that Jesus died and rose again for my sins. And I want to accept him as my Lord and Savior today. How about you? You got any children prodigy out here? Any, any of your one, two, three-year-olds do that? And so it leaves people with a certain sense of doubt going, what does this mean for my kids? And trying to find alternate ways because, whoa, does that mean that they can't be saved? No, it means you have to start redefining faith. And let me ask you a very basic question because I also want to redefine faith for you this morning. Because I bet you predominantly think of faith as understanding things and agreeing that they are true. Does that mean if someone gets Alzheimer's, they lose faith? Does that mean that it's impossible for an infant to have faith? I want, to think, I want you to think about it in a different way instead. Think about faith more as trust. And trust more as an inclination of the heart towards God instead of away from him. You know, I've seen infants. I've had three. Not personally, but... I watched three of my children be born. I watched them be born and I didn't see one of them come out of the womb knowing their mother's name. I didn't see one of them come out of the womb or in those first few days, maybe by a month old, articulate who mom was. But I saw all of them instinctually reach out to mom or allow themselves to be held by mom or no mom without knowing a fact about her. I would say they trusted their mom. I would call that faith. And God is looking to plant faith in the hearts of your kids. God can do this in any number of ways and far be it from me to ever limit the way that God can work faith in any human being around this globe, no matter how far they are from a Christian context or how close. But there are certain ways that he does it. It's why we baptize infants. We think it's one way that the Spirit of God comes into, into children to plant a seed of faith. It's why parents, it's so important to nurture your children in the way of the Lord, singing to them and reading to them and praying with them and talking to them, that even if they don't understand all the words, they're coming to trust this one that you call Jesus, that you trust to. You parents are the harbingers of faith. And that means kids can go to heaven. Trust in the God who loves your children more than you do, but take the responsibility to bring them to faith. Okay, now do you want to hear about animals? All right, do animals go to heaven? Simple answer to this. Are we talking about dogs or cats? <laughs> Some of the apocryphal books of the Bible make this clear that all dogs go to heaven, but cats spawn a hell. Spawn a hell, I'm sorry. It's an unanswerable question. And it's unanswerable because the scriptures do not clearly reveal it. Oh, but they leave a breadcrumb tra bread trail that we can follow. 
Some believers also mistakenly listen to the urban legend that animals do not have souls. From a biblical definition, they do. I don't know how you define a soul, but I'll tell you how the Bible does. A soul is that which gives life to matter. Have you ever seen the difference between a living dog and a dead dog? A living cat and a dead cat? I'm not going to ask which is better in the latter half. <laughs> Animals have souls. They're alive. They're creations of God. God loves your dog. God loves your cat. God even loves your hamster. God loves the mice you catch in the traps. Wrap your mind around this. God loves the mosquitoes that you slap. Oh, can you imagine if we have to answer to God for that someday? He says, take care of my earth, and we spray poison, kill them all. <laughs> Killing or murder, I'm not sure. <laughs> no, God loves your animal, and your animal has a soul. And whether your dead hamster's soul is in heaven right now as we speak, I don't know. But the promise of the Bible is not heaven forever. It's a recreation of a new heaven, new earth. That what we think of heaven is temporary. That we're not disembodied souls that float throughout all existence and space and time. No, that God made you with a body. That in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he called them very good. God wants matter. And the hope of Christianity is resurrection. Jesus came back from the dead, flesh and blood. He was eaten right? You could feel them. Put your hands in my hands. Put your hands in my side. I'm real, dude. It's, it's, it's my translation, but that's kind of what he said to his disciple, Thomas. And I look at those prophecies that talk about, oh, Isaiah, the wolf will lie down with the goat. The bear will feed with the cow. The lion will eat straw like an ox. Nothing will destroy on all my holy mountain. I think of the way that Colossians spins this, 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 this idea that God is not just coming to redeem sinners, but to redeem the cosmos. That all that sin is affected, that all is death has touched. And I'll tell you, there's animals that have suffered under the hands of sin from no fault of their own. I don't know if your animal will be in heaven, but resurrection, new heavens, new earth, Oh, now that's a different story. Can I merit God's favor through works? And if not, then why should I do them? No, and because we all need a challenge. <laughs> now, look. Look, let me divide a couple things for you here. There is nothing you can do to earn God's mercy, forgiveness, or favor. Central to Protestant thought is that we are saved, let me say it again, by grace. That's actually central to Catholic thought as well, despite some of the urban legends that surround that. You're saved by grace. Do you know what grace is? Grace is a gift. Grace is God giving you something that you don't deserve. Grace by nature cannot be merited. You are saved, or you can be saved, because God's going to save you. You say, Lord, save me. Throw yourself on your mercy. If you haven't done it, do it right now. Lord, save me. 
Lord, I can't do it. I can't earn it. No, you cannot merit God's grace. But can you do things to please him? Can we talk about his favor a different way now? Things that make him happy? Things that delight him? Things that are in line and in sync with the way of how he's built this cosmos to run? Can we do things to put a smile on his face? You bet you can. Just like you can do in any relationship you have. So why do we do them? Because it's the right thing to do. Because it honors God. Because it's by nature good. And the purpose of Christianity is not to get you a fire insurance policy to save you from hell and get you to heaven. The purpose of Christianity is to bring you into relationship with God. And who the heck wants to be in a relationship where it's like, okay, I'm in it now. I got what I want out of it, but I'm just going to do what I want. It's non sequitur. It doesn't fit. And so that's why we devote ourselves to doing good because we love them. And you do good things and things that make the people you love happy, even if it hurts and even if it costs you. Don't we? Great question. I'm so glad you asked. And talk about one that strikes at the heartbeat of what this is all about. Okay. So heaven is the theme today. Do people from other religions like Buddhism go to heaven? Or add whichever one you want. Redefine it. God does not give a rip what label you call yourself by. People go to heaven because Jesus died for your sins and you receive him in faith. There's a lot of people who call themselves Christian that are not going to heaven because they're making a religion of their own idea dependent on other things than the way of God. And I bet there's people in this world that call themselves by other names that Jesus died for too. And they've thrown themselves on the mercy of God even if they don't know the name Jesus. And I would say you don't even know the name Jesus because I tell you that's an Anglo name, not a Jewish one. that might be throwing themselves on the way of God from what God has revealed in various ways about the truth of he is, and even if it's corrupted by other belief systems that they have, just like you're corrupted by the Western belief systems that we have, that you'll meet in heaven. Don't hear me the wrong way. This is not to say that all religions teach the same thing, believe the same thing, or are equally right. No, 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 no. Don't ever go that direction not only is it just fundamentally untrue, it's insulting to people of other religions. Not to mention our own. But God is not hung up on the label. By grace, through faith, no matter who you are. Does that help? Text him again if it doesn't. Okay. How about this? Um... Should I use someone's preferred pronouns if they don't match his or her sex? You been in that situation yet? I don't know if this is hypothetical for you. I don't know how many of you have come across this. 
And I can't give you a formulaic answer. What I can give you is principles to help steer you. And I'm going to put two on the table. As a follower of Jesus, there is a certain level, well, there's supposed to be a total, but there's a commitment to our first loyalty and our first line of thought and concern always being to him. Which means, if the way of Jesus is not conformed to the way of the world or to what's popular, to what's convenient, or to what keeps us out of hot water, to what's comfortable, we're always called to the way of Jesus first, no matter the cost. That's hard stuff. And so, if the question is motivated from a place of going, I'm kind of doing this because I'm trying not to rock the boat. I'm trying not to make waves. I'm trying to keep my job. I'm trying to stay out of hot water in academia. I'm trying to, you got it? You very well may be called to another way. But the way of Jesus is always loving people and loving people who are confused, loving people who are sinful, loving people who are journeying, loving people who are making mistakes, loving people who are trying to figure it out. Dare I even say this so strong in the spirit of this, and please hear no offense because I don't mean it, people who are deluded. So many of us are deluded, aren't we? How do you deal with a person deeply struggling so much that they start to delude themselves into believing certain things that are clearly not visibly the case with gentleness, with patience, with love. And sometimes that calls for honesty. Sometimes that calls for charity. Maybe put another way, as Paul would say, it always calls for the truth and love. You know, it's such a hot-button topic right now, despite the fact that it affects so few people. But make no mistake, it does affect people. And people are asking and thinking and wondering about it. Well, God loves those people. And maybe you're here, and maybe you're identifying another way or listening and you're identifying another way, and God loves you too. God loves you so much. I don't think you become a woman if you're a man just because you want to. Any more than I think I can become Chinese just because I want to. Or four foot three just because I want to. I can't lift 350 pounds on the bench just because I want to. And no matter how many surgeries I undergo, I don't think it alters the essence of who God has made me. But I want you to know that I love you. And I hope as believers you'll love them too and be willing to walk with them through whatever journey that they're on as it comes up. It's about the best I can do. I think in a theoretical, hypothetical situation, I hope it's helped a little bit. Let's keep going. <laughs> I have to. Do plants go to heaven? <laughs> Biblically, plants do have a soul. Again, I don't think the soul of a plant is up in heaven right now, but new heavens, new earth, and what that looks like in the recreation, we'll see. I know this is opening up logical connections with the animal kind of thing. 
That's a deeper one, but I don't think so. But will there be plants in the new heaven, new earth? You better believe it. All right? <laughs> I'm cold. All right? Can we turn the air down a little bit? Okay. This is the stand-up, stand-up for Jesus moment. Watch this. Watch this. Who here is cold right now? Who here is warm right now? Who here thinks it's just right? Welcome to the dilemma of every single church. God has invented something. It is called the sweater. We don't want people stripping down in these seats. Love your neighbor and bust out the coat, all right? About the best we can do for you. If having faith is what saves us, is doubting God's existence an unforgivable sin? Great question. Simple answer, no. I'm going to say something, and then you're going to come back in another question, and it's going to sound anti-biblical if you know your scriptures well, but I'm standing by it. There is no such thing as an unforgivable sin. What about Mark 3? Well, you didn't ask about Mark 3, so I'm not going there. No, doubt is not an unforgivable sin, and let me tell you why. Doubt is not the absence of faith. Doubt and faith are not mutually exclusive categories. And let me frame this in another way. Is courage the absence of fear? I don't believe so. I think the most courageous people in this world are the people who have the most fear, but they get on with it anyway. Because you know what courage is? It's having fear, but still doing the job. You know what I'm saying? It's the same with faith. Doubt is not the absence of faith. It is not antithetical to faith. No, faith is often having doubt. And some of the people that I know who have the deepest faith have the deepest doubt. But they dare to trust God anyway. And I don't mean, oh, I believe, I believe, I believe. Like, like you're, you're trying to brainwash yourself. That's weird. No, but they step out because faith is an action word. Faith is trust. They throw themselves on God's mercy and operate according to his way and stake their lives on his promises and dare to believe them against all, all common sense logic and odds. Even though there's doubt there, oh, you can have doubt and have great faith. No, no. Doubt is not the unforgivable sin. All right. Let's see. I got so many here. You guys have had a many, um, so many amazing questions, and I'm just going to do one or two more for our time today. What is a lukewarm Christian? Now, do you remember earlier when I had some people raise their hands if it was cold, and some people raise their hands if it was hot, and there was that third group who said it was just right? Those are you lukewarm Christians, Okay. <laughs> From Revelation chapter, it's two or three. Let's see. Where's the one where Jesus wants to throw up? 
Uh, come on, jump out at me. Is it Laodicea? It is Laodicea? Yeah, here it is. These are the words of Jesus, mind you, to a church in present-day Turkey. This is what he says. It's not there anymore that I know of, but I mean, it was back then. Jesus says to the, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write this. These are the words of the amen. Jesus calls himself the amen, the, the let it be so, the one who is the, the proof of the promises of God, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to vomit you out of my mouth. First of all, it's disturbing to me that God's chewing on me in the first place. <laughs> but you know what? Sometimes we're really distasteful. You ever have that moment where you go to drink something and you think it's one beverage and you find it's another? And, you know? Who here likes a steaming cup of hot chocolate or like a latte, a good steaming kind of coffee drink like that. Who here likes that kind of thing? Okay, some of you. Who here likes a cold, cold glass of milk alongside some cookies or cake or something like that? And some of you are already like, I'm spitting everything out of my mouth. Who here are lactose intolerant? All right. Does anyone here like a good savory cup of 80 degree milk? Just, you know, you pour it and you let it sit on the counter for three hours on a day like today, and then you go, mmm, you know? See, both hot and cold in this metaphor that Jesus is setting up are good. Sometimes we think of hot as good and cold as bad, and no, that's not the spirit of this. Hot and cold are both good here. Lukewarm is this metaphor of simply Jesus saying, there's something distasteful here in your deeds. Be hot, be cold. And that doesn't mean be on fire for Jesus or be turned off to Jesus. No, 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 no. That's the wrong way people take it. A lukewarm Christian is someone who seeks God primarily for themselves. Easiest definition I can give you. I'm in a relationship with God predominantly for what's in it for me. Which means the conduct of my life, the devotion and zeal of my heart, the sacrifices I'll make or probably won't make are driven predominantly by what's expedient, what's beneficial, what blessing I'll receive as a result. Have you ever been in a relationship with someone like that? Can I encourage you that if you're dating someone or engaged to someone in a relationship like that right now, don't pursue marriage until that's rectified? It's a toxic, unhealthy thing, and many of us are in toxic, unhealthy relationships with God. Lukewarm. And God's just like, this is disgusting. Nobody wants to be disgusting to God. No, there's something so much better. Hot or cold. That's a lukewarm Christian. Look, the iPad blew up. I mean, a good way, like with questions. <laughs> so many more. And I want to answer them all. But we're going to do this in bite-sized chunks throughout the summer. So I want to assure you this. 
If you asked a question here today, it's top of the queue next Sunday. And all through this month of June, I'm going to continue to speak into these amazing questions that you've been asking. And we just invite you to come back. And if you're not here next Sunday, live stream it. And if you can't live stream it in real time, listen to the recording. Access it because I'm going to be hitting these as we go. And invite your friends. Share this with someone. Because there's people out there, people in our lives, who have deep spiritual questions and don't know who to ask or are getting fed all kinds of, well, if this has been a blessing to you, share the blessing as well. I'm going to invite the band to come back up. Keep on asking. And as they get tuned in, let's rise and I want to invite you to pray with me. Merciful God in heaven, Father, Spirit, Word, Light, Amen, the faithful and true Jesus, we come to you and we thank you that you've come to us. Come to us not because of our inherent goodness, Come to us not because we have earned something, but because you love us. And Lord, may we soak in your blessing and grace. We pray you pour it upon people here today, that you pour your spirit upon those here today who are worried about their animals and where they're going. You pour it here today upon those who are worrying about their kids. You pour it here upon those who who fear they've done an unforgivable sin. You pour it here upon today at those who are struggling with doubt. You pour it upon those who are struggling with their gender, those who are struggling in LGBTQ, those who maybe have killed. We pour ourselves out to you, God, asking you to help us see that you're doing the same. May May we be so much more than lukewarm Christians. Oh, Lord, tune our hearts to sing your praise. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's our hearts, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. We love you.